Good morning. It's good to see everybody here and uh, be with you, worshiping our Lord together. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Here we continue to work through this epistle, and we've been observing that the second part of chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, can be divided into two parts. Negatively, Uh, in how believers should not live in 17 through 19, and then positively in how believers should live in verses 20 through 32. We see that uh, beginning in verse 20, as we've been examining these verses at length over the last number of weeks, that Paul continues the thought which he began in verse 17, but now positively. He tells the Ephesians that knowledge of Christ is to be experiential. To know Christ is to be changed by him, that they would be renewed in the spirit and put on the new self, a new life founded in the passive and active obedience of the new Adam in the likeness of whom they were created. Paul then goes on and he gives practical implications or practical applications as to how the new person in Christ lives day to day. And among these are five specific exhortations for believers. It is this morning that we address the fifth and final one. So follow along as I read for us Ephesians 4, beginning in 25 through 32. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need." Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him again in prayer before we continue. Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning as we come to your word, that you would fulfill your promise to make yourself known to us through your spirit mediated by Christ that we may worship you fully, Lord. And likewise, we may walk in newness of life. We ask these things according to the sureness found in our merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, last week we learned about what it meant to grieve the Holy Spirit. We We recognize that this is an anthropopathism. 
I may not have used that word as I think back, but it's the idea of assigning human emotion to God, our human passions to God. And we learn from that, that to grieve the Spirit is to disrupt and oppose the work of the Spirit in building up the church and to hinder the work of the Spirit in the new life of a fellow believer. We remember that this is connected all the way to uh, the beginning of uh, verse or the end of verse or chapter twenty, chapter two, and verses twenty-one and twenty-two, where we read that we were we're being fitted together, growing into a holy temple, in whom we also are being built up into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We recognize the encouragement that this understanding. Uh, tells us that we are sealed by the unchanging Spirit of God who lacks nothing and is not subject to decrease. Well, the verses this morning are likewise connected to a wider context. From the word, therefore, at the beginning of uh, this section in chapter 4. So, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that, or excuse me, at the beginning of chapter 4, where he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's there at the beginning of this chapter that we learn that Christianity is not just a no religion, but it is also a be religion. Here in these two lists in verses 31 and 32... We see them right next to each other, and it culminates Paul's previous construction of exhortations. And we see that Christianity is also not just a don't religion, but also a do religion. We'll approach these two verses under these three headings. Uh, Dehortation, exhortation, and explanation. This morning, as we engage with our verses and we see much as it relates to uh, what we are not to do and certainly what we are to do, we recognize that as law. And we agree with the formulation in our confession that the law does sweetly comply with the gospel. And so this morning that we would not be discouraged under the burden and weight of a do this and live religion, but a Rejoice, for Christ has done, and so do also religion. It is my desire that you would see that it is our forgiveness in Christ that compels us to put away these vices and to put on these virtues. And so as we address the first, as it relates to the vices, we address it under this heading, dehortation. It's a word I came across during my study, and I, I liked it so much because it kind of makes you stop and think. It's an old word, and it basically just means that it's an exhortation against a course of action. So instead of exhorting you towards something, it's pushing you away from something. So this dehortation we see in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It is to be observed, or it is observed, that the first words, bitterness, the first word, bitterness, deals with attitude. The next two words, 
where we see wrath and anger deal with disposition. And the last two, clamor or shouting and slander, refer to manner of speech. What is it that we are to put away? To put away from us, we're to put away all bitterness. That it is an attitude, this bitterness is an attitude of resentment toward God and neighbor such that you desire less of God's favor upon them. This bitterness is a resentment toward God and neighbor, and really we cannot exactly separate one from another. We can't say that you can be unbitter towards God and bitter towards your neighbor, nor can you be bitter towards your neighbor and unbitter towards God. I may have said that the same way. You cannot be unbitter towards your neighbor and bitter towards God, for they interplay with one another. They will, each one bears the fruit towards the other. We see that in relation to the greatest two commandments. This idea that we are not to resent God or resent our neighbor is related to an attitude that we have towards one another where we see anything done to them or good towards them is to be good towards us because we are united to them in Christ. We are of the same body of Christ. So where the Lord blesses one, he blesses us all. And so we can let go of that bitterness as it relates to that. For we are to, in likewise, be kind. We're also to put away wrath and anger. Ian Hamilton sees wrath as anger that overflows, either in sullen hostility or in brawling, in uncontrolled anger. These, this wrath and anger here together show us that what we have to deal with is a disposition of anger and such that it would boil over into this uncontrolled wrath. It's not rooted in the anger, be angry and not sin, in verse 26, which should be rooted in an offense to a righteous and holy God. But this anger and wrath is in defense of our own ever-changing desires and expectation. That we would put away wrath and anger would be to temper our desires and our expectations, relating them to our own Christian liberty and and affording the Christian liberty to our brothers and sisters so that we may put away all wrath and anger. That which is held in our attitude, that which is worked out in a disposition, is surely to come out of our mouths in words. And so we are also to put away all clamor and slander. The embittered and angry heart is prone to outbursts of hurtful and destructive speech. Clamor is an idea of of shouting. This this idea of of, uh, rage or or, um, of yelling. Not that there is never a time to yell and to raise our voice per se, but as it relates to this in connection to 
Um, the forgiveness that we're to afford to one another, it is one of stored bitterness and a disposition of wrath and anger, and so then clamor comes over us. Consider the contrast in 1 Corinthians 13, that if we have not love, it is like a clanging symbol. See, without love, our speech is clamor. If we lack Love in our speech, it is only clamor and certainly can lead to slander. Slander is an idea that it's, it, or the, is a word that's rooted in the idea of blasphemy. Blasphemy we are well aware of as it relates to God, for we are not to blaspheme our Lord, but we are to speak only true things about Him. We're not to take his name in vain. We're not to speak things untrue, knowingly untrue about him. And so we are not to blaspheme him. But here, as it relates to slander, we are also in likewise not to slander or blaspheme our neighbor. I should also say and have said at the beginning of this, this certainly relates to us and the world. But in the context here in verse in chapter four, this is amongst each other, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And I was pondering that this week as I was thinking of this passage and thinking, what an interesting thing. What a, a sad thing, but I guess in, some, in many ways an encouragement thing that Paul, in, the, in, the, in this first century church, in the early infant church, was exhorting these believers to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander with all malice. In other words, it existed among them. Paul recognized at the very least their proclivity for it to exist among them. That the church tarries or the church is a pilgrim is not yet what it is fully to be in consummated reality. And we must not come to church and look at our brothers and sisters and expect from them what we can only receive from Christ. That is perfection. Perfection of attitude. Perfection of disposition. Perfection of speech. And so we too, in ex expectation of others, must recognize in our own selves our proclivity towards these things. Namely here, slander that we would not blaspheme each other, that we would not speak falsely about each other, that our words about each other would be uh, rooted in love, in the love of Christ and the love we have for one another. The Spirit likewise says in Colossians 3.8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Paul here coming to another congregation, another church has to tell them or desires to tell them, understanding more than likely his own disposition, his own concern for the sin in his life that we see uh, meted out for us in Romans chapter 7, where Paul recognizes that in him there's a battle, there's an inner turmoil that he desires to do what is good yet does what is wrong only to come to the conclusion 
that, that he can only be, de be delivered from this body of death by Christ our Lord. And so he comes to these churches, he writes to these churches, and he tells them to put away, put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. I think we would do well to examine our own attitudes, our own dispositions, and our own speech for such things. Certainly, let's see the bitterness and let it not take root. Let us catch ourselves in our wrath and anger and lay aside our ever-changing desires and expectations. Let us also not let that which comes out of our mouth be a clanging symbol and certainly let it not be uh, of destructive and abusive speech that is slander. He caps off this list of vices with this phrase, with all malice. It's interesting as we read this, and again, in the context of the church, these are interactions between brothers and sisters in Christ are not to be shaped and flavored with this idea of malice. Malice shapes all these vices towards harm. Malice is often masked by our sense of justice. Somebody wronged me and it must be made right. Malice is often masked by our sense of justice, which is actually vengeance. I will have my day. I will have my recompense. This is malice. Putting malice aside is, is to place it, it, we may place it in the context of our passage, in, it's contrasted with forgiving each other. The, the contrast to Un, being forgive, or having a forgiving spirit is being unforgiving, but the reality of being unforgiving is to treat one another with malice. Here, the commentator aptly discerns, he says, one does not have to remove all consequences for sin. And he says, uh, for example, to pardon in order to forgive. So one does not have to remove all consequences for sin in order to forgive. It may be just and necessary for an offender to suffer consequences for wrong, but the motive of the one imposing or requiring the consequences cannot be mal malicious. We are not permitted to desire the ultimate harm of the offender. The gospel always provides hope always seeks restoration. Even when the criminal is sentenced, we properly rejoice to see justice done. The Christian also desires to see the offender recognize the sin, repent, and know spiritual restoration. Forgiveness does not require pardon from consequences. It requires an absence of malice. That is, no desire for the person's spiritual harm even in the application of those consequences. We may well desire justice, but desires for personal revenge or spiritual damage are not our right as Christians. Often we have a hard time between consequences, forgiveness, and pardon. 
if I use this commentator's contrast. We, we assume that to forgive one another is to remove all consequences. Yet, to forgive one another is to lay down the, the sword of harm. It's to lay down the desire for repayment. To lay down the desire for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. To trust them to the Lord. To encourage them. Because again, we are speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ to repent of their sin, to know spiritual restoration. And they may first experience that in the forgiveness of their brother and sister. And so we are to lay aside bitterness, wrath, and anger. To lay aside clamor and slander. To lay these aside along with all malice. Certainly would be enough for us to speak of such things, but then we'd be left with what we might be tempted to think is a blank slate. Okay, these are the things we're not to do. God's word is wiser, for it provides us what we are exhorted to do. We see this in the first part of verse 32, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. One who is kindly disposed either by nature or by grace, will be at all times ready to do a good action for another if it should lie in his power. Kindness is being ready to do a good action for another if it should lie in his power. We are to be kind to one another. Galatians Five. Turn with me to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What is the desire of the flesh? For the, des- for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is 
no law. Now to those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. As we recognize this high calling to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, we recognize that this is a life no unconverted person can live. This bar that Paul sets is a life of no, that no unconverted person can live. For here, even couched in our context, is that we are to for, ultimately forgive each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In Galatians chapter 5, it was couched, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It is the fruit of the Spirit of the indwelling spirit that produces such things as kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Here, I believe Paul alludes to Psalm 34. This psalm is directly uh, quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 3. So turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Well, we see the illusion in beginning in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Again, if I can just pause and consider the dehortation of of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice. Though that is of the old man, consider our new man who is not in want of any good thing. Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length the days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Lord here in Psalm 34, pushes us to see where Paul is saying to be kind to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. There in Psalm 34, we recognize that it is out of the one who lacks nothing in God can come forth ideas of peace. That in kindness and tender-heartedness and certainly in forgiveness, we're seeking to, leave pe- to live peaceable amongst each other. The measure of tender-hearted kindness is measured in our forgiveness of one another. Here we see this in the explanation 
there in the last phrase of verse 32, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This we will examine under three subheadings. Forgiving each other is of the kingdom. Forgiving each other requires mutual operation. And forgiving each other is rooted in Christ. Stereotypically, every nation is known for something. In my mind, Italy is known for its wine and its food. France, its architecture and bread. Germany, its sausages. So likewise, the kingdom of God is known by at least its forgiving spirit. Look in Matthew chapter 18. Let us be reminded of this long ago sermon that was preached to you. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 23. After, uh, let's go to verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, said to Christ, Lord, how often shall my brother, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning, summoning him, summoning him, but his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Do we see the comparisons here? The comparisons between our sin debt, what the slave owed the king, 10,000 talents, This is compared to what the slave was owed from another slave, was measured in denarii. When someone sins against us, that sin against us, measured against our sin against God, is measured in these insurmountable amount 
of 10,000 talents compared to this menial 100 denarii. Though true, debt was there between slave and slave. It was a debt that was to be forgiven. It was a debt that was to be looked upon in light of the great debt that was forgiven us from our king. The kingdom of God is to be known at least by its forgiving spirit. Forgiving each other also requires a mutual operation. We're to forgive each other. That's why our membership vows read, do you commit to love one another as you, as you love yourselves with love supplied to us through Christ? Do you with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, promise to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Do you commit to holding each other up in your prayers and seek to admonish each other when needed, as well as being admonished by each other and be ready, if need be, to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you? Forgiving each other requires mutual operation, that we are ready to forgive each other for the wrong done against us, and we are ready to seek forgiveness when we wrong another brother. These words from Burke Parsons are a helpful reminder and an apt application of our verses this morning. He says, we all live in a world starving for real friendship, genuine community, and meaningful relationships. But that takes genuine love, patience, repentance, grace, and forgiveness. And it only happens if you are willing to risk your temporary discomfort for long-term joy. We are to forgive each other or forgive one another just as God in Christ also has forgiven us, requires eyes of faith. For what we see and experience now is that temporary discomfort. What we need is the eyes of faith to look upon the long-term joy that is promised to us in Christ so that we may look about the debt owed to us by our brother, our sister in Christ, and forgive it willingly compared to what has been forgiven us in Christ. And such that forgiving each other is distinctly rooted in Christ and so has the substantial foundation of the Christian God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Spurgeon observed that the heathen moralists, when they wished to teach virtue could not point to the example of their gods. The gods were a compound of every imaginable, and I had almost said unimaginable, vice. Many of the classic deities surpassed the worst of men in their crimes. They were as much greater in iniquity as they were supposed to be superior in power. Forgiving as we have been forgiven teaches that because we see no diminishment of standard of holiness, or teaches us that we see no diminishment of standard of holiness after 
conversion. The Spirit here testifies that we are to put away all of these vices in their fullness. It is not just all of them, but all in their completeness are we to put away. In another place, the Spirit says, Be holy as I am holy. Never is it said, You are so bad, turn to Christ. And having turned to Christ, be sort of good. There is no diminishment of standard of holiness after conversion. The standard of holiness is Christ. So we are to forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Seven, seventy times seven. We are forgiven in Christ because of Christ's twofold obedience. And I think this may be helpful for us to ponder as we consider that there will be those that treat us named among Christ in their flesh according to their old nature that will treat us with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander with all malice. So it's helpful for us to understand how we are forgiven in Christ. And it is according to Christ's twofold obedience. Most Christians are well acquainted with Christ's passive obedience. This obedience is the obedience unto death of Philippians 2. This is wonderfully and awfully captured in Isaiah 53, which you can turn with me if you'd like. We're well acquainted with this sermon as, or this passage as it's widely read on uh, Easter Sunday. But we see, beginning in verse 3, that he, this suffering servant, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faith, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried away. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offering. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Christ's passive obedience. This is an obedience that is essential to our forgiveness. It's one that we're well acquainted with. We see it in the cross. We see it in Christ's words that he had no place to lay his head. But equally essential is Christ's active obedience. Oftentimes, we emphasize the death of Christ, and rightfully so, but we should also emphasize the life of Christ. His active obedience consisted of his perfect keeping of the law of God throughout his life. This we see in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, beginning in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as though one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Here we see the active obedience of Christ, that it's summed up in the act of, of righteousness here in Romans 5. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's also summed up, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This active obedience of Christ consisted of His perfect keeping of the law of God throughout His life. It is said that as J. Gresham Machen lay dying on, his, on New Year's Eve, 1936, he wasn't thinking about any of his many and considerable achievements throughout his life. He dictated a telegram to his colleague, John Murray, in which his last words are recorded. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. It is here we rest when we find that our bitterness 
wrecks our kindness. When we find that our wrath and anger, clamoring and slander is hardening our hearts and that our desire to forgive is overshadowed by our malice. It is here we rest that it is Christ who has given us his life, perfect and undefiled. It was by his sacrifice we are made new. Look to the obedience of Christ. Surely there is no hope without it. It's from that that we may be encouraged to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. That we may put away and put off all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice, and be kind to one another and tender-hearted. I'll conclude with the final verses of Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the souls of his servants, and and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We see the moving from the singular to the plural there at the end of Psalm 34. The singular of the one whose bones are not broken so that the many will not be condemned, so that the many will be redeemed, so that the many take refuge, who take refuge in him will not be condemned. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is honest of our condition. It is honest of the reality of the world in which we live in. Even amongst those named amongst Christ, those that continue to battle the flesh and so will often act out, will often in their flesh harbor bitterness be disposed to wrath and anger, even speak in clamor and slander. O Lord, even with all malice, we thank you for your word true to us, that we may see our world And we may see that which you have redeemed so that we may look upon our brothers and sisters who would do such things to each other. And we may be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving and recognize where we too have sinned against them. That we may forgive them as we have been forgiven. O Lord, What wonderful truths. 
what sustaining power is found in your spirit to such things. May it be worked out in us according to your good and perfect purposes. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.